This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Nita Prose is a longtime editor serving many best-selling authors and their books. To say that her debut novel, The Maid, has made a big splash in the literary world is an understatement. Here to talk about her ultra-successful debut and so much more is Nita Prose. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Nita. Thank you so much, Mike. I'm so happy to be here. Well, I'm happy to have you here. And I, I always ask everybody the same question, uh, intentionally broad, and you can pick it up from wherever you like. But um, tell me, where does your story begin? Oh my goodness. Well, you know, I, as you alluded to in, in that lovely little intro, I am an editor uh, and a writer. And, you know, uh, the thing I can tell everybody who's listening is that I've only really ever been good at one thing, and that's telling stories and helping other people tell stories. So whoever I am, that to me is the heart of, of, you know, who I am as a person and as a professional. So in so many ways, making this move at the tender age of 49 and a half uh, to become a debut author feels like a long continuation in doing the same and only thing I've ever been good at. When did you discover, you know, that at heart you were a storyteller? Oh, you know, I think I always knew that. And I think it's a trait that I inherited from my mother, who was also um, uh, uh, just an incorrigible and incredible storyteller. Have you ever seen, Mike, that movie Big Fish? You know what? I've It's, it's on my list of movies to see. Uh, who was the director for that? Was that... I, a I can't, I can't remember. And I don't have like a device at the, at the ready, but, (laughs) but regardless, I'm bringing this up for a reason. And it is because in that movie, we see a relationship build between um, a son and his father, where the father tells these extremely outrageous, ridiculous stories that the son never believes. And he's, you know, on his deathbed, he's dying. Um, but you know, throughout the course of the, of the movie and the film, we learn that in fact, some of these stories might actually be the truth. And, you know, in my own life with my amazing and extraordinary mother, she used to tell stories that were just so ridiculous and over the top that I did not believe many of them at all. And this is just like, you know, this is part of our family lore. Oh, there's another good one from Jackie my mother. And, you know, when she passed away a few years ago, um, now I went to one of her sisters and I asked about a few of the stories. Now, some of them were completely made up, but there was one story 
that in fact was, well, several, but one that was extraordinary that was, was true. And it's that she rode a pig to school um, for uh, uh, quite a while. And you can tell why I kind of mm, rolled my eyeballs at that idea. Oh, oh, sure, mom, you rode a pig to school. I take a school bus, but you rode a pig. Well, it turns out it was actually true. Oh my goodness. <laughs> you know, what's funny about that is when my kids, so I have, I have three, almost 20 year olds. Um, we have triplets and, you know, I would put them to bed every night and, you know, we'd always have story time. And I was just so tired of reading, you know, and I love the stories. I mean, Madeline, classic in our house. Harold um, on the Purple Crayon. Yes. I memorized it. Um, but I got tired of reading them. So when I, when I would lie down with my daughter, Gracie, she was always the one who would like, tell me a story, tell me a story. So I started making up stories. Um, and I made up when I have a twin brother, I made up one about me and her uncle Jimmy kind of walking back from like a fair or carnival. And we both had balloons and he let his go. And to be nice, I gave my balloon to him. But when we got back home, we found that his balloon had magically flown and landed in our backyard. And she always loved that story. She, tell me that story. Tell me. So like a few years ago, I admitted to her, I'm like, Grace, I'm like, that never, I made that up. That never happened. And she got so upset. She was like, I thought, I believed you. I believe that story about you and Uncle Jimmy and the balloon. I'm like, Grace, you're, you're, you know, it's, it, it was, it was um, product of my imagination but wait was, until was... santa claus and the tooth fairy that's all Shh. i have to say she listens to this podcast <laughs> can't tell her about the santa claus or the easter bunny or the tooth fairy <laughs> what are you doing you're outing me i'm sorry I'm so sorry. story sorry storytelling is in your in your blood when you were when you were a kid kind of going through you know grade school were you did you have a knack for it then i mean were you were, were your teachers like telling you hey you know, you've got a prowess for this. Were they encouraging you along the way for that? Yeah, I would say so. You know, um, let me just say I'm not a mathlete. Okay, I can't add, <laughs> adding, subtracting, all those other things. Um, do not understand, cannot. Terror, <laughs> terror. Um, so, you know, words are, are my milieu and that's where I've always sort of shone. So, yeah, I think I was aware um, at a young age that, you know, words were such a tool. They were so powerful. And, you know, you could use them to create imaginary worlds into which one could escape. And um, I, I learned that early on and I, I employ it still. Mm -hmm. So I know that The Maid is your debut novel. You mentioned, you know, 49 coming out. Um, but I imagine that it wasn't the first thing you've written. That's true. So as an editor, um, something that I do is ghostwrite. Um, so I've collaborated with many incredible uh, experts and, and uh, people who, you know, work in fields where writing isn't their forte, but, you know, they might be able to, oh, I don't know, ride in a space shuttle or such, or, you know, fill Madison Square Garden or, 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 and so I work with and collaborate with, with people in order to tell their stories. Now, the big difference between The Maid, my debut novel, is that it is fiction. Whereas in, in the past, as a ghostwriter and as a collaborator on books, I've always worked in nonfiction. Yeah. So I want to I want to just talk to the the editor inside you uh, for a moment, because, uh, you know, usually on the show, I, I feature authors. But a few weeks ago, I did have an editor on first time. Um, and I think that's, that's a part of, 
it's a little mystery, I think, to most people, you know, like kind of what the editor does. I mean, not, not for people who kind of work in the industry, but for like the average reader. Um, I think, you know, there's this misconception that the author kind of writes it and magically um, it gets published without really understanding like the role of, of the editor. So what, what I'm curious about, first of all, is like, what, what, how did you, you know, fall, not, I don't want to say fall into editing, but how are you drawn to editing as, as a career? Well, you know, it, it was something I went back to school for, and I always knew that I, I, you know, might find myself in that realm. And I was in publishing classes and suddenly realized, oh my goodness, like I've, I've found my calling. Like I, I would wake up early in the morning in order to, you know, work on my assignments. And it's like, oh, okay, I get it. This is where I'm supposed to live. This is what I'm supposed to do. Um, but, you know, I think you're very right when you, you say that, you know, there's this mythology that, you know, uh, a work, uh, particularly fiction, uh, just comes out like Zeus's children fully formed from his head. Uh, and that, you know, it's a solo creation by a solo person. But the truth is much more like the credits in a movie. To publish a book and to have it mediated in one territory, never mind many territories around the world, is like, you know, an endeavor that takes a whole village. It takes so many people um, behind the scenes to make that work. And that's something that everybody in the publishing industry knows. But I'm not always certain that people who go to bookstores and grab books or go to the library and grab books know entirely what a village um, is behind each and every one of those publications. Now you mentioned you went back to school to become an editor. What were you doing before? Ah, so I worked with special needs students and I taught English. Um, and it was truly an unbelievable and formative time in my life. It was one of those um, jobs where I went in, you know, as the teacher and came out as the student. <laughs> and, you know, in, in many ways, that time has really found its way intrinsically into the maid and into my character, Molly. One of the things that I, I found while I was teaching was that my students, you know, in the classroom, they were wonderful. Um, and, you know, they had all the, they came with a lot of labels and learning plans. And, and those were always very helpful for, for me as an educator to try to help them, um, you know, learn according to, to the best way that would work for them. But when we went out in the world, I was always shocked by the casual cruelty that they faced um, from everyday people, whether it be in a shop or a museum or wherever. And it was something that I never forgot. But more importantly, what I got to see were these incredible, um, you know, mostly boys actually, but boys and girls who were more adaptable, strong and resilient than so-called normative mm -hmm. people. And that is something that has always stuck with me. And in my portrayal of Molly in The Maid, I try to bring that feature out in her. You know, I love that you, you know, you mentioned kind of drawing upon that first career and like putting it into, you know, as part of the story of The Maid somehow. Um, because I think, you know, so, so many of us have these life experiences. You know, I was, I was talking to um, an author, very successful author, um, this probably this time last year, 
who made her living before she got into, you know, writing and publishing as a children's musician. And, you know, was, was doing actually pretty well with that, but, but took that experience and put it into like a story, um, which was, was her like big, big debut. And there's something about kind of, you know, they say, write what you know, um, but, but really there is something to that, isn't there? There is. I mean, the interesting part or the corollary to write what you know is, you know more than you think you know. Um, and certainly that was a discovery process for me with this debut is, is, is it's funny how your own experience wends and winds its way into what you write on a page. And that can often be as surprising to the writer as it is to the reader. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a little psychology that goes on with it. Like when you're, you know, when I think about writing, it's, it's you know, for me, it's very solitary. I'm kind of being very reflective. Um, and then things just start to come up and bubble up. I mean, yeah. it's, it's almost therapeutic um, yes, for in, sure. in many ways, um, in many ways. Uh, all right, one more question for the editor inside you before I start talking to the author inside you. Um, and I know the lines there, I'm sure, are blurred. But um, I'm curious, like when you're when you're working with um, an, an author um, uh, to edit their work, what, what are some of the things that you really are motivated by? Like what what do you, you know, you kind of, you mentioned, you know, that, when you were when you were kind of going to school for it, you were waking up early. What is it about editing that you really you know find that that fuels you? What I really love is participating in the creation of another person's world. Uh, I love it when an author has a vision for something, but doesn't always know exactly how to articulate um, that vision on the page. And that's where I do my best work. It is a collaboration between editor and writer at that point in order to figure out a way to get through what I call the labyrinth. So, you know, um, the way I would explain that as a metaphor is that, you know, a writer stands in front of a labyrinth and then their job is to go through that narrative maze and get to the end of the story and have it be, you know, an entertaining and successful pursuit, whatever that means. Now the editor stands outside the maze and they're on a giant ladder looking down. When the writer goes in there, they can't, they, they cannot know in advance that when they turn left, they might come to a dead end. And, and that writing process might take six painful laborious months only to learn, oh my goodness, I, I haven't made it through and I'm stuck. The editor, however, has a bird's eye view and, and a good editor should be able to say, you know, if you take that pathway, you're going to come to a dead end. So go right, not left. And here's how you might map this out to, to you know, get through your story and to your narrative pursuit at the end. Um, so I've always found that metaphor useful. And it really, I hope, articulates a little bit about what the function of an editor is versus a writer and how the two, at the best of times, can be in, intrinsically linked and, and help each other through. You know, I, I, I love how you articulated that because I think in, in, in some people's minds, and again, not, not people who've been through this process before, but they might think of the editor as, you know, the red pen, uh, right. correcting grammar, you right. know, making sure tense is, is consistent, um, but not really thinking of like the content edit or, or the big picture and structure, right? Structure. The architecture. Yeah. Yeah. And Voice. Even, and as an author, you really need that outside perspective because you get, you know, we all get sort of, we all fall in love with our children in, in some ways. And 
um, you kind of need that. You kind of need that outside perspective. It's almost like market research for, for product development in a way where, you know, I might hire, you know, I might do focus groups and, and to understand, you know, what do people like or dislike about a certain yeah, product? Exactly. But you need that outside perspective. Exactly. Um, Does this taste good to you or is it just me? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I completely agree. So having kind of gone through on on the author side of things, and again, I know this isn't the first work you've published, but it is the first novel you've published and it's got your name associated with it. Did you, um, did you come away with, with a deeper sense of empathy for the authors you work with because now that you've, you've been on the other side of it at all? Oh my goodness. Did I ever, Mike, you know, I always was obviously empathetic and aware of, 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 you know, the, the turmoil that the author faces in front of that labyrinth. Um, it is a very vulnerable place to be. And, you know, I've seen that from the other side as an editor. I've noted in my authors that, that, that struggle and that difficulty. However, <laughs> one thing is to see it and another thing is to feel it. <laughs> and let me just say, uh, I, you know, I come with great humility now understanding just how vulnerable one is as a writer, um, you know, going into that solo creative process that you alluded to, where you're all by yourself with your thoughts and the page, and you have to deliver something there. It is, it is at times excruciating, at times exhilarating, and you never know from sentence to sentence what's what's going to appear in your emotional world. Yeah, I mean, if there if there's things I've learned um, just by talking to you know really successful authors. Um, it's that, you know, cost of entry. I mean, obviously cost of entry is you have to have a good story. Um, you've got to have a good sort of command of the language you're writing in, but you've got to be a really curious individual. Um, but almost as important and maybe even more important to your curiosity is your ability to be vulnerable. Yes. Um, so vulnerability being so important to, you know, creating something authentic, creating something that's going to move other people. Yes. Yes. And that fear of failure rings in so many authors' minds. And that I've, I've found can be very true of incredibly successful authors sure. as much as for little debuts like me. Well, I wouldn't call it a little debut, but I think that's a good segue into uh, talking about The Maid specifically. So I'm curious, when, when did this idea come to you? How did it come to you? Um, when did you start thinking, hey, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a stab at, you know, doing something that I've been kind of coaching other people through um, for, for, you know, the other part of your career? Well, as I hope comes across in the way I've talked about my editorial life, I love my work. I love working with my authors. I love uh, being involved in their creative processes and helping them and come through and, and on the other and, and survive it and get through on the other side. Um, so I didn't have a master plan to, oh, now I'm going to write a debut novel. That's not how it happened for me at all. This is how it happened. In 2019, I went to the London Book Fair. This is a massive fair that happens in the UK um, every year where all kinds of publishers and agents come together and we talk about books and what's coming up in the marketplace and so on. And I was staying in a London area hotel and I stepped out for a bit for a meeting and came back at an unusual hour in the morning, opened my hotel room door and completely startled the maid who was cleaning it. And I remember her, you know, jumping backwards into a dark corner and you know the highly embarrassing part is that she had my pants 
in her hand because I'd gone for a run that morning, left my sweatpants in a tangled mess on my bed like an idiot. And she was holding those and looking shocked to see me. And I just thought to myself, wow, like it's such an intimate and invisible job to be a roommate. You know, she'd been cleaning my room for days. So she knew so much about me, but I knew nothing about her. So that's, that's how it started. And it was just like one of those funny little things that lodges in some unconscious part of your brain. And then you get on with your day. Yeah. And then, you know, like a few days later, I was on my plane ride home after my trip. And that's when it started to really gel for me. I started to hear Molly's voice, the protagonist from The Maid. And it was crisp. It was clean and precise. And it was polished to perfection. And I heard it. I heard it just like that. And I grabbed the napkin from under my drink because I didn't have any paper. And I started to write what is now the prologue to the book in a single burst. And that is when, even though I didn't know it at the time, I started my debut novel. Wow. Wow. Um, that's, that's an amazing story, but, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask. What were you doing all night long? Um, it sounds like you came in at a very uh, unusual hour of the morning. What was, <laughs> was there a big party at the book fair or? No, what was... no, no. I had gone. <laughs> no, it's not that exciting. That's the other thing about writers is, you know, many of us live a very undramatic life and we reserve the drama for the pages. So I had gotten up early to go for a run because, you know, one of the features of the book fair is that you're having lunches and dinners and snacks and breaks and drinks a thousand times a day and you are so full <laughs> that you know you have to move a little bit occasionally so i'd gone for a run and i'd come back that morning then left again for a meeting Got so it, it was an unusual time to be in a hotel room 10 a.m that's when everyone's out gallivanting and i think that's why the maid was so surprised when i came upon her because she's like whoa you should be gone you're always gone every day you've been gone that by this what are you doing here now you know well fair enough but it's a much better story if you were out all night long. I know. But I, I know. get it. I get it. Um, <laughs> I, I, I completely understand. But I love the idea, just that that sort of vision of you sitting on the plane with a cocktail napkin, kind of writing, um, kind of writing it all, writing it all out. Um, that Sometimes that's how, you know, stories come to me. I was on vacation once um, and I had just finished um, putting the final touches on uh, a book um, that my editor had had, you know, gave me a number of suggestions. And I was, I was, you know, I was doing this on vacation. It was kind of like a working vacation, but um, you know, it was fine. I, I do it all the time. Uh, and I'm like, okay, not gonna write anything for a while. And then I went to, of all places, um, as a good little Catholic boy, I went to I went to Mass and there was the priest must have been 95 years old, like on the altar. And I started thinking to myself, what happened if he just dropped dead right then and there? Like, what oh, would we all do? You're a writer. And then it was, <laughs> well, what happened if we found out he was poisoned? Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. all of a sudden, I'm like, I gotta, I gotta outline this. So then like, I was, I was lost for the rest of the vacation outlining this, you know, what, what became the last homily, uh, aptly titled, by the way. <laughs> Very uh, aptly titled. <laughs> but see, this is the problem with a writer's brain. Yeah, is it just goes off, it unfurls, and there we have no control over those inspirations. 
Yeah. Now, you know, if that priest had been wise, he should have made the sermon much more interesting because then you would have been able to focus on that and not make up stories. Well, very true. However, we hadn't even gotten to the sermon yet. Uh, it was <laughs> it was very early on in the uh, in the mass experience <laughs> where my brain was already in a different direction. Um <laughs> But it's funny, it's funny, you know, your, your brain doesn't turn off. There have been, and if my kids were here, they'd tell you, you know, like so many times I'd be driving them to school and I'd be like, hey, can one of you guys text me the following? Um, just because I, I had a thought and I couldn't write it down because I was being a responsible parent and driving. Um, and I'll, I'll have them like, just text me phrases. And they'll be like, mm -hmm. what does that, they're like, I don't even want to know what that means. <laughs> and, you know, they would, they would, you know, gladly, gladly comply. They, they've learned to deal with it now, but um yeah, it could be. I always say it could be worse for them. Um, it could be a lot worse. It could be a lot worse. And I'm sure they're that somehow they're sponging up all that creative energy that you're putting out there. Yeah, well, they are. I know at least one of them is. I'm not sure about the other two. One of them is actually very good at math, which um, surprises me because neither my wife or I, you know, uh, like yourself, wouldn't be considered math scholars. Um, but uh, that's neither here nor there. Uh, so the maid comes out. I mean, does do you feel as if your life changes overnight with with the success of it, or how would you characterize? Uh, I mean, I know there's no such thing as an overnight success, although it, it, it appears that way sometimes. How did you how did you kind of deal with sort of the um, you know the the positivity of of the launch? Well, I can say that it was tremendously gratifying, but also extremely weird to, you know, launch a book like this in a raging pandemic when you're not really allowed out of the house. So, you know, uh, when I hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list, it was like, great. So you're going to go out and celebrate. Um, no, the <laughs> restaurants are closed in Canada. Uh, there's nowhere to go. We're only allowed to gather in groups of five, um, like... <laughs> So it's been a quite surreal time to, to have this wonderful success happen. But you are right. Successes don't really happen overnight for authors. They happen in this slow and agonizing daily process that begins so many years before any reader actually sees a book in the marketplace. So, so they're very hard earned over a long period of time. I mean, it's it's a long way from those notes on the napkin on the airplane to you know the the book I see kind of over your uh, over your left shoulder there. Um, yes, and I don't think people re you know realize that. And I think the same is true for you know actors. The same is true for musicians. You know, no one sees all of the time you spent playing in a bar or doing open mic comedy. Um, you know, in restaurants when no one's paying attention, they see the success, but they don't see the journey leading up to it. Which and is that's kinda... a good thing. That's a good thing. Nobody <laughs> wants to see the early drafts. Let's just be clear. Like, <laughs> no, and I think it would scare people away from even attempting it. Yes. You know, if anyone out there is thinking of it. Um, that's true. So uh, what's what's next? What's next for you? Is 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 um, is the maid going to be a you know debut novel that is a first you know, first and only novel, or is there is there more? Uh, well, I'm definitely going to write more. There's no question about that. The question is, what do I write next? And, um, you know, I'm mulling over several ideas right now. Um, I'm just not sure what direction I'm going to going to take next. Yeah. And then the really exciting part for me is the fact that Universal Pictures has the option for the film. And Florence Pugh, the Academy Award um, nominee for uh, Little Women, who was in Black Widow and Midsummer and so many other things, is set to star as Molly. 
So I am tremendously excited about, you know, this transition of the maid from book to screen. And I cannot wait to see what they'll come up with. What role, if any, are you going to play in uh, the screenwriting process for that? So I'm executive producer and certainly I've been involved in the in screenplay writing, but I am not a screenwriter and I know my limitations. I'm probably better at that than math, but maybe not so much. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I am tremendously fortunate to be surrounded by incredible professionals and uh, I can't say too much more, but I am so excited about yeah. what's to come. That'll be great. You know, you just mentioned Midsommar. I watched that uh, a couple of months ago. Have you ever seen it? No, I can't. I cannot watch anything that scary because I will never sleep again. I, you know, I don't even know if it's scary. It is just weird. Well, disturbing, right? It's disturbing. Like, disturbing yes. is probably a better term than scary. Yes. Yeah. I had a full play by play by my partner because I really wanted to see it, but I know my, my, I just can't, I just can't do it. So I've seen everything else by Florence Pugh, but not that. It's, it's interesting. My, my kids were like, dad, you would love this movie. You have to see it. So I watched it and I'm like, now I actually look at my kids a little differently. I'm actually wondering, I have big questions about them Yeah. and yeah. their taste. Yeah. Um, that's, that's, so that's, you might be um, in new territory for a whole other novel there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Um, well, I do have some questions, uh, some specific questions for you. Um, I, I, I asked, uh, you know, I, I rotate a series of questions that I ask all of my guests here. Uh, the first one's always a, an easy one, although I do find some people have a hard time answering this one. Um, but my first hot seat question for you is what was your favorite TV show when you were a kid? Oh, wow. I, I think I had many. Um, I really liked the facts of life. You know, I can hear the theme song right you now. You take the good, you take the, the facts bad. facts of life are all about you. I loved that show. I loved that cast of women and girls. And I love the boarding house setting. Um, everything about it appealed to me. Is there, is there any one episode that, that comes to mind that you, that you remember or that just comes to your mind right now? Not really, because I'm so, so bad at that. And that is a byproduct of being an editor, is that I read so quickly and read so many manuscripts that they only, like, it's, if my brain were a computer, like, it, they don't store in the hard drive place. They, like, and, and story doesn't store there. So I don't remember plots on the long-term drive, you know? They only go to the short-term memory. Well, not that you asked, but I will share with you. Uh, the episode that I remember crystal clear is it was like a very special episode where they dealt with uh, marijuana and Blair uh, had discovered uh, what, what would be known as um, uh, the devil's lettuce, if you will. <laughs> and, um, you know, they, they did a whole like little investigation because there was like a pot ring going around Eastman. I think it was Eastman Academy, right? That's, uh, that's um, right. Yeah. And, uh, and which was funny because years later when they did, you know, like a, uh, when all the girls graduated and Mrs. Garrett opened up, don't ask me why I remember all this stuff. Um, probably because I'm not a great editor, but it's <laughs> Mrs. Garrett opened up Edna's Edibles in Peekskill, New York. I thought that'd be a funny name for like a weed shop, Edna's Edibles. Um, especially that's that's so good. And it could come with that fabulous bouffant hair that she had and a little close up on her face. I like it a lot. 
so Jimmy Kimmel did, um, he does this thing every year with, um, uh, who's the guy that, that made all those shows, you know, facts of life and, and different strokes and all the Norman Lear, Norman Lear. Yeah. Um, so he does this the thing Jefferson's. every year with Nor Jefferson. Sure. He does yeah. this thing, um, every year with Norman Lear, where they do a live reenactment of, you know, uh, two classic shows. So this year they did a live reenactment of the facts of life. And it had like Jennifer Anderson as, um, as Blair, oh uh, wh whoever played Joe, it was, oh God, the woman from, um, her name escapes me. Uh, she was in, um, oh, forget it. I won't be able to remember it. Anyway, the <laughs> casting was perfect. Will Arnett was in it. Jason Bateman was in it. It was hysterical. Um, that is fantastic. Yes. Followed by different strokes right afterwards. Anyway. That's okay. Amazing. So facts of life got you down for that. Okay. Now this one gets a little bit more, more tricky, but probably easier for a writer editor. How do you feel when you're staring at a blank piece of paper or a computer screen uh, with the intention to write something? All right. I'm trying to actually live in that moment. It, the last time I experienced that was a few hours ago at 5 AM, which is when I get up and I write and I place, as I did this morning, a blank page in front of me. There is, it, it's first a moment of abject terror, but then there's also an openness that happens. And, you know, for me, especially at, at, at the beginning of a project, I just have a stream of questions. And you talked about curiosity before. And I think that's just such an important quality that, that, that writers share. And the more curious you are about the function of story and where it comes from and how it might evolve into being, um, the more chance you have of, of actually writing something down. So, you know, as soon as I'm in though, like as soon as I cut into that page, as soon as I write something down, that nervousness, that tension just disappears. I don't remember it the second I start. And it is just gone because I'm in the moment. I'm in that space where creation happens and there's no feeling quite like it. When you're up at five and you're looking at a blank piece of page, are you continuing something you wrote before? Or are you coming up with something brand new um, in, well, in those it, wee it, hours of the morning? It really depends on the day and what, what's on the docket for that day. Today was a blank page day. It was, you know, I have an idea. I'm halfway through just thinking it through and I have, you know, four or five problems to solve. How will I solve them? Um, and then I just let the ideas flow and I capture some of them on the page. If I think they might be useful a little bit like your texts from your, your kids <laughs> that make no sense to anyone else except you. That's a process that I engage with on the blank page. Right. Yeah. I mean, telling your kids, uh, Hey, text me bloody knife under carpet. Right. Um, you know, that might freak them out in their, in their more formative years, but. Um, right. Right. Taxi driver taking you to the airport who remembers your address and that you're not home. That's one that happened to me a few weeks ago. I'm like, Oh yeah. Click, 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 write that down. <laughs> All right. Uh, so a little bit of terror followed by, um, maybe a little bit of relief, but, but there's some sort of, uh, creative energy there. Yeah. Without a doubt. So putting your, uh, your author hat on, um, what lesson about, you know, writing or publishing do you feel like you learned or had to learn the hard way? Huh. I think in, in terms of publishing, it is that, that hard truth that sometimes you can do everything right and the publication will go wrong. 
Um, you know, the thing that I love and that I hate about book publishing is its unpredictability. Um, you know, sometimes you can think you have the most successful book and your author is going to just fly with it and it doesn't pan out. And that is so tremendously painful when that happens, especially when you know you've done everything right and they've done everything right. And the whole machine of publishing around you has done it right. But there is also something beautiful about that. Um, and it's about readers, uh, because finally, in the end, reading is a is a democracy in the most fun fundamental ways. And the reader gets to decide what they like. Um, and I do love that so very much that the power yeah. finally is in, is in the hands and the eyes of the reader. Yeah, they vote with uh, they vote with their wallets. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, how about this? A um, lot of a uh, lot of aspiring authors out there. What what's the best piece of advice, or what's some advice uh, you would give to somebody who says, you know, I'm an aspiring author. I want to publish a book just like you did. Um, you know, what what would you tell that person? Uh, I'm not going to be popular for this suggestion, but I really do feel it is the best, the one best piece of advice that I can give, and it is read, read. And here's what I mean by that. I don't just mean read casually for entertainment. I mean, read voraciously and widely. I mean, study what you read, understand its form, its structure, get an understanding of voice, how a story moves from beginning to end, um, how style manifests on the page, collect as much information about writers like you and writers totally different from you because through that process, you can learn so much about the craft and it's something that you can teach yourself. You know, it's, it's, I don't know that how unpopular you'll be with that answer because I hear that answer a lot, um, which is, you know, being, uh, used the term voracious, um, but being a reader, if you're, if you're an aspiring author and you're not a reader, um, you know, you, you are up against, uh, you know, um, going to be hard. It's going to be, be difficult. And, and it, it's like, you know, you think about master classes and I know that there are, you know, masters of fine arts programs out there. And, you know, those are all, you know, many of them are great. Uh, many a great author has come out of them, but what you learn just by reading and understanding, okay, well, this is how this person, you know, put, put, you know, their structure together um, or, or this is how they executed this, this really awesome plot twist that no one saw coming. Um, to me, like what you, what you learn just subconsciously by reading a lot, um, there's really no, um, no replacing. I completely agree. And I'm glad you, you believe that that might not be so unpopular. <laughs> not, no, not that, that will not make you unpopular. I, I do not believe so anyway. Um, uh, this one might, uh, <laughs> <laughs> what do you wish, uh, that this is with your editor hat on, what do you wish authors knew about editors or understood oh, about editors? That we are not the axis of evil. <laughs> <laughs> so often, especially with debut authors, um, enter with an abject fear of the editorial process. Um, and, you know, uh, it's so important for at the beginning of that process and with an agent involved to make sure that the goals are shared between an editor and author. And when the goals are shared, you know, that's when real magic can happen. Um, but I, I find that especially with debut authors, they, they're so tentative and terrified 
that their vision will not be shared with the editor. And all I can say is, you know, if you've had those conversations already and you are seeing eye to eye in a sort of general way, everything in all probability is going to go just fine. Yeah. Um, I love that. Not the axis of evil, um, which I think is, is a misconception, especially, you know, with, with, you know, first time or, or debut, um, debut authors. Um, you know, you're right now. And I've heard, you know, I've heard that before, um, you know, really should be considered a, a collaborative editor should be a collaborative partner versus, you know, a taskmaster, uh, if you will. Um, Absolutely. But that, I mean, that goes to vulnerability though, because, um, you know, you're giving someone, this is probably likely the first person who's seeing a complete piece, uh, you know, outside of maybe a friend or family who's probably not going to tell you the truth, unfortunately. Right. Um, you know, so there is that vulnerability there. It's like, you're, you're like, you know, you, it's, it's a nerve wracking thing. It's a it is. Thing. It is. And we all want to, you know, produce something that everyone's going to say, oh my goodness, this is ingenious. There's not a word I would change. Um, but, you know, get that fantasy uh, out of your head <laughs> um, and, you know, allow for the possibility that actually your work could be improved and that your editor wants success for you as much as you do. Yeah. Uh, last one up is, uh, I call this my Brad Paisley letter to me question. If you're not familiar with Brad Paisley, he is a country music uh, superstar and he's got this great song called letter to me in that song. He writes a letter to his younger self and uh, gives himself some advice. So if you could write a letter to uh, your younger self, Nita, what, what's some advice would you give your younger self? I guess I would say, Nita, just don't worry anymore. Um, you know, you, you are what you are. You can't change this. You're an old soul. You've been an old soul since the moment you popped out into the world. And you might be a little strange and you might be a little too much for a lot of people, but don't worry about it. It doesn't matter because you can't change it. So just be who you are and you'll get where you need to go. Right, right. An old soul who went clubbing and, and stayed out all hours of the morning <laughs> at the London, the London Book Fair. I love how you're creating a great reputation for me. This goes back to my big fish and my mother who That's like, right. you know, you're just weaving a tail. So I'm just going to go along with it. <laughs> well, I mean, the maid's been out for a bit, but if people are listening to this interview and say, hey, you know what? I'd really like to buy that book. Where can people go uh, to buy the maid? I think you can go to any bookstores near you. It's at all the indies, but it's also at the big chain stores. And I hope you pick up a copy and write to me and tell, tell me what you think. Well, my next question, of course, would be where can they write to you? Where can they find more information if they wanted to follow you on social media or uh, you know, visit your website? Where, where could they go? So if you go to my website, it is nitapros.com. And there you can find all kinds of information. I'm on Instagram and on Twitter. And my handle on both is at nitapros. At nitapros. Well, that's, uh, that's easy. That's easy for people to find. So uh, Nita, it was fun talking to you. And I wish you all the best. Thank you so much, Mike.